Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Well, hello to you. The Phil Hay Show is brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. You can get in touch with the show via the Twitter account, which is at The Phil Hay Show. I'm Dan Moylan, and on the show today from The Square Ball, Michael Normanton. Hello. And from The Athletic, it's Phil Hay. Hello. With the football season back, it's the perfect time to subscribe to The Athletic if you are not yet subscribed. You can join now, read everything that Phil's been writing about, about Leeds United, and so much more from like the Premier League and a host of other sports from around the world. And if you sign up now, you can get 33% off the price of a full subscription. You can find the details at theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. I mean, the kebab chat is enough for me, but tell us what else is there. Yeah, we, we do every now and again, we do a mailbag, Leeds United mailbag where people ask questions and I, I answer them. Uh, we'll come on to transfers. This particular one was basically wall-to-wall transfer questions. I did leave it open. It was an open goal for anything. And the only person who went off-piste was asking how much I would pay for, for a kebab. And I said to him, I paid £6.50 for one on Monday night, which I think is quite a lot of money. But then I am I am Scottish. And food like that generally does not cost anything like £6.50 up there. It also came an hour and a half late. And I suspect they're trying to tell me something because I'm about three stone overweight since my operation. And... <laughs> If anybody needs a Bielsa pre-season in Leeds, it's definitely me. Was that a donor or are you talking proper, was, proper lumps of it, chicken it was, breast and It stuff? was mixed. There was what was allegedly chicken breast in it. It was quite nice, actually, despite being a bit a bit cold. But um, it's time I was cutting that out, I think. Well, on the transfers chat, we will get into that uh, momentarily. First of all, we can't go any further without talking about Terry Cooper. And it, it feels like it's only you know a few weeks between these players passing on now. Another club legend leaves us which is just it's just another terribly sad day and of course we'll like to pass on our condolences first and foremost to his friends and family we're running out of things to say under these circumstances aren't we it feels a little bit like we're we're a broken record especially as we're we're trying to talk about players who were actually before our time a little bit so we're we're kind of going on the legends that were passed down through the generations but one of the all-time greats you automatically get caught talking about how sad all this is and that that's six Reavy players in the space of about 15 16 months which is which is unbelievable, and the, it's a case of the, the bad news just keeps coming um, on that front. But what I liked about some of the coverage of Cooper and, and some of the chat after he, he died was the debate about the fact that he was a very sort of modern fullback, modern left-back who played in the way that, that managers like Bielsa these days want the fullbacks to play. And you always have this debate, don't you, about whether how the best players from that era would have coped in today's game. The game today is generally quicker. The pitches are better. Players have far more in the way of medical support. Training tends to be, you know, there's much more science behind the training and, and they're looked after in a way that they, they just want back then. You know, you have a lot of players from the, the 60s, 70s, 80s who, who suffer from some pretty major injury problems even now, you know, many years after after they've retired. And the general consensus with Cooper is that he was the sort of player who could genuinely have played in any era, not just because of his talent, but because of the way he read the game and because of the way he was as a fullback, he could overlap, he could underlap, he could do all the, the kind of what we call these days third man runs and so on. Just another exceptional player and another part of that that fantastic team. And it just feels like we are coming round to this time and time again every couple of months. Not so long since McBates, not so long since Peter Lorimer and, and clearly last year we had Norman Hunter, Jack Charlton and, and Trevor Cherry in quick succession as well. It's it's hard for the club. I think, as I always say, it's even harder for the, the players who are left behind because they were more than teammates, these guys. They were extremely good mates. I know Eddie Gray used to play a lot of golf with Mick Bates when, when Mick was well. Same with Peter Lorimer. That was where I always caught Lorimer when I wrote his column for the Yorkshire Evening Post was on the golf course with, with Eddie and... It was great fun between them. They they loved it, but it was also extremely competitive. And Peter would always say, we're going up the last in its level, so I, I need to win this one. And, you know, one by one, they, they are going. And it's incredibly sad. And I think Cooper is probably one of those players who's spoken about a little bit less than the main men in the team, your Bremners and, and your Greys and so on. But I, I suspect everybody would agree that he was every bit as good as them and, and every bit as integral to that side. I watched a few clips of... Um 
of Terry Cooper just in preparation for this. And there are a few knocking about there. If you Google his name, some really good stuff. And I see exactly what you mean about him fitting into the, the modern era. He's like fast, direct, just like that quick interchange of passes. You could see him genuinely. You could see him in, in a Bielsa side, couldn't you? Him and Eddie Gray on the left, it must have been made in heaven, that when they, they were both both fit. And of course, there was the goal in the, the 68 League Cup final, which always felt like a really seminal moment for me. Reeve needed to get the team out of the second division to begin with, but they'd lost their first FA Cup final appearance. But the 68 League Cup final was the one that was the first major trophy for the club. And it was like the starting point for all the honours that came on, on Reeve's watch. And Cooper was a, a huge part of that. Another one that played you know more than 350 games for the club, that's what always astonishes me about these guys is the number of appearances, particularly guys like Charlton and Hunter and, and so on. But Cooper, again, you know, there for, for nigh on a decade. They, they were not only very good players, these guys, but they were extremely loyal and did stick around no matter what. And everybody knows the stories about basically them agreeing to blank contracts that Reavy would fill in for them. They trusted him. They liked the club. They they liked very much the the team they were playing for and I, I see in the notes you, you included the quote where he was saying that when he went to Middlesbrough it was only at that point that he realised how good the team at Leeds had been and I always regret the fact that I'm not old enough to have seen it in the flesh because like you say you can look at Cooper on YouTube and you can see the highlights of him but it's it, I think what what you realise under Bielsa is that it's never the same as watching in the flesh and watching the players on the pitch because that's when you really understand how much they know about the sport, how much they know about their own position and, and what it is that they can really do. He was an absolute Rolls Royce of a footballer. Um, yeah, you said 351 appearances. It probably would have been 100, 200 more, were it not for the, the broken leg that yeah. kept him out for the best part of uh, of two years. But yeah, he's absolutely sensational when you see the clips. And like you say, it's just a, it's a glimpse into that world, a world that's slightly before our time. But uh, these players, I mean, the only parallel I can draw is like, they're like the Beatles. Uh, I view them in the same way that I view the Beatles. Like, you know, my dad having the albums around the house and talking about them in revered terms. And it's the same. They're the footballing Beatles, this Ruby side. I think the thing about them all growing up together as well and the blank contracts, it's all part of the, the legend of it as well. And it is knowing that that, that isn't going to happen again. Like we've, we're lucky to get Calvin Phillips at the moment, aren't we? And if you can get one or two players out of the youth side and playing your first team, it feels like there's a real good integration with it but realistically a left back from just up the road probably isn't going to happen anymore certainly not someone who can stay there for 350 appearances and win trophies and it's I suppose it's the romance of a football it's kind of what you what you're always hoping for isn't it when mm. whenever a young player comes into the side is that you'll you'll get to see them win trophies and and stick around forever I guess it's the end the end of that as a as a concept is the is the, the dying of a, of these review boys. We're recording on the day of uh, Stuart Dallas's signing, the anniversary of it, and it's six years. And I, I woke up this morning and saw the tweets to that effect, and I thought, oh, six years—that's a long old stint. You know, we've we've done all right out of Stuart, then we'll probably get another few more years out of him. So he could be in for a testimonial. Well, I mean, they used Liam, to be commonplace, didn't they? Liam Cooper's up to seven now, um, and and the time does fly if you if you are prepared to to sit tight. I remember when Peter Lorimer was first taken ill, and this is a, a long time ago now thinking to myself that, you know, these, these guys aren't going to be around forever and they're the sort of presence at Ellen Road, particularly on match days. You you don't tend to see too many faces from the 92 title winning squad, too many faces from the Champions League team, too many faces generally from, from teams gone by, but the, the Reavy players always seem to be on the scene. They've been such a focal point and also such a big part of the club's corporate events on, on match days. I know that the supporters love the fact that these these ex-players mill about and speak to them and, and tell them stories because they have some fantastic stories to tell. I always loved um, Eddie Gray talking about Lorimer's attitude towards the Reavy dossiers, you know, these big dossiers. And, and Lorimer basically looked at them and said, you know, for, for an FA Cup game, you're trying to make a fourth division fullback look like the best player in the world. And, and Peter's words were always, just let me go out and beat the arse off him because I will. And Eddie would say to me, "I, you know, Dom would hand these um, these dossiers around, and you knew that Peter wasn't going to read them because you couldn't really get Peter to read the Racing Post. Like, you know, so it just wasn't wasn't the sort. But they were so so tight knit. And I know Terry was was living abroad. I don't think the Reeve squad had seen so much of him recently. But I I haven't spoken to Teddy about him because you you got to the point where you felt like you were calling Eddie every couple of months to ask about you know friends of his that that he'd lost and." You knew that he would say the same thing about Cooper, which was that he was an outstanding player and a lovely guy and, and a and a big mate. But they, they genuinely were, were that close. And it's people like Eddie that I feel really sorry for. And on to this season then and matters at hand. We are only a week away from the start of the season. And 
as you were you were saying there, like you know, all the questions you're getting bombarded with on the Q and A, it's all about transfers. So it seems like the obvious place to start with this one. Then only Junior Firpo signed for the first team. Does it look to you like we're still going to do a midfielder and a winger? Ask it properly. Ask ask any news, Phil. Come on, do oh, it. Sorry, do I... it in the do it in the the time on a traditional way. Any news? Have we got Phil? a drum roll? <laughs> Any news, Phil? No. <laughs> um, they they have got Klassen as well, obviously, who's coming as a second choice. And even though he's under 23 age, he'll be, be in the first team squad this season. You can tell me, it feels a little tense to me. Just the, the general vibe on social media and Twitter and everything else. I don't get the sense it's tense inside the club. They seem happy with where they're at, which isn't to say that they, they think they're finished with transfers. But you tell me, people seem a, a little... Honest, that, that was the sense I was getting from the mailbag questions was that all of a sudden Furpo's done and they've got the left back, which was the, the position they really, really needed to cover this this summer. But everybody wants more than that and people seem a little a little underwhelmed, maybe. I think so. I think perhaps they made a bit of a rod for their own back by pushing the boat out a little bit last summer and it's raised the bar of expectation a little. I think the other thing that factors into it at this stage of the season is that We've got 38 games in front of us, and that's a lot. You know, it's, a, it's a large sample size. We've got no evidence yet as to how this season is going to unfold. So, if we put in a good performance at Old Trafford, hopefully come away with the point, three points, whatever it might be, and then kick on against Everton, it'll settle everybody down. But because we've got no evidence of what this season looks like yet, everyone starts to imagine the worst. I'm actually relatively <laughs> Michael, relaxed. Michael doesn't count though. Mate. <laughs> Michael was Michael was fearing the worst when promotion was sealed. From looking at Twitter, I think I'm actually more positive than than most people. I kind of think we'll be all right. I would still like a bit of extra strength in the midfield. Probably centre midfield. I think is where we, if we need a position, it's probably there. I feel like the wings are more or less covered. Well, it would be nice to have someone else in there. I think with Rafinha and Costa coming off the bench, it's fine. Dallas can play there. Somerville looks quite good and Pervader are in the reserves. Like I think I feel like there's just about enough there. The centre and midfield it feels like there's quite a lot of hope attached to that though, rather than genuine in you know, baked in expectation of, you know, Somerville's gonna come in and rip up the Premier League and Pervader's gonna kick on this year and his costs are finally gonna deliver. There's a lot of what ifs. There is, but I think if you've got if you're gonna accept that Harrison and Rafinha are first choices, it's kind of hard to recruit someone else to say, Well, you're gonna come and sit on the bench, I suppose. Mm. You, you know, if people are wanting us to spend twenty, thirty million pounds on a winger where did they play? You know, you've got to, I suppose you, you've got to try and sell the, the team to a new player, haven't you? And if, if you're going to be on the bench and they're trying to fight your way and maybe that's a, a more difficult sell. I, I suppose I'm saying that I feel, I feel like it's just about all right. I'm not being naive here because it is a different season. And as you say, once you get into it, you get a feel for, for how it's going. But there is a, a sample of quite a, a major size from last season and the way they played and, and generally the three years under Bielsa, the, the consistency of it and and the reliability of his football and, and the quality of it. I, I think you do have to show a little bit of faith and I certainly agree that the bar was set high last summer but the only thing I would say about that is that the narrative around it was very much and, and you know this from, from having Kinnear on the show was that the expenditure last summer would mean that this summer the expenditure didn't have to be so vast or to be quite quite so so dramatic. And and to give them the due, they have spent twenty five million so far on Harrison and, and on Furpo. And and I you know I get that Harrison was an existing player in the squad, but the money still needs to needs to be committed. I think if they end up with a left back, a, a centre mid, um, and potentially a winger, then it will be very much the the window as was projected at, at the start of it. Um, I don't think any of us expected there to be wild changes to it. And there are a few things at, at work here. The first is, as we always say, that there is a squad size which Bielsa doesn't want to go beyond. So you're never going to find him stockpiling players. You're never going to find him signing cover for players that he doesn't feel that he needs cover for. If he feels that Cleek and Stuart Dallas are fine for, for that role in midfield, then you're not going to suddenly find this huge pool of depth because that just isn't how he works. It's also fair to say as well that when it comes to certain players, Bielsa fixates on and, and takes a really keen interest in players who wouldn't necessarily light the fire of, of supporters. So, for example, Conor Gallagher, they're not going to get Gallagher because he's gone on loan to Palace, but they were massively keen on him and they were massively keen on him because Bielsa was hugely keen on him and liked a lot about his game, liked his skill set. And it is always with, with Bielsa about skill set rather than reputation. He wouldn't go and sign anybody um, regardless of reputation if he didn't think that they would fit particularly well. And and you'll know as, as well as I do that he wasn't 100% sold on DePaul. He wasn't convinced that DePaul would be right. And that sounds odd. And, and 
there are managers out there who look at recruitment and think a good player is a good player. And to some extent, you sign a good player and you make them fit. But with Bielsa, it's very much about who fits. And if they fit, then they can come. And if they don't, I mean, I've probably told the story before about the January window midway through the promotion season where Arthur said to him, I can get you Billy Sharp and I can get you Glenn Murray. You know, if you want one of them, they've scored goals for promoted teams before. They would probably get you seven, eight, nine before the end of the season. And a lot of managers would have looked to them and said, well, even if they don't fit the system perfectly, they probably will score and we create chances. So on the balance of percentage, they are, they would be good deals. Bielsa just said no to both of them. He just said, I, they don't fit. They're not what not what I want and they're not what I want to sign. And obviously they went on to do Augustine, which was not a success. You know, so it's not a, an exact science, this. But it, it is very much him who's, who's molding this team. So Gallagher's gone. They are in for O'Brien at, at Huddersfield, Lewis O'Brien. Good player. Again, another player who people might think, well, not a lot of showbiz there. But he's somebody who Bielsa evidently likes. Bielsa was there for the, the um, League Cup game against Sheffield Wednesday over the weekend. That one looks like it's there to be done if, if Leeds actually want to, to push it through. And I know it's not a Nandes, for example, but I don't think they were ever signing Nandes. I don't think that was ever in the plan. I don't think that was ever going to happen. You know, this is one of the players who he wanted to focus on. But they are very disappointed about Gallagher. They were when that fell through because Otter pitched the presentation to him as he does. And Otter's presentations tend to be very good. He's really clever at showing players what they do with their existing club, how that'll marry up with the way that Bielsa's teams play, what training will involve. He's, he's really, really successful generally at selling a move. But Palace were extremely determined to get that one done. I think Patrick Vieira was very involved in the, the discussions with, with Gallagher. So so he is gone. And, and at the moment, it looks like if it's going to be anybody, it'll probably be O'Brien. You see, I don't know about you, Michael. Do you agree? I'm not that disappointed that Conor Gallagher's fallen by the wayside because there was never any permanent deal in it. I, I actually favour Lewis O'Brien if it has to be out of the two of them because it looks like we're going in for him on a permanent and he's then ours to keep and develop. I feel like the Ben White experience has damaged us a, a bit in this respect. As... As much as we've had many lone players over the years, we've just—it's been quite nice to be able to throw them back. With Ben White, it did feel a bit like if we only—if only we'd had something in the deal that we could have kept him. As happy yeah. as I am with Urente and Cock in the end, um, I think it would have been nice to keep him. And I think it is the thing with with Gallagher—he probably wouldn't have gone back, even gone back to Chelsea and played, would he? They would have been expecting us to build up his price to then sell him on to Crystal Palace, Crystal Palace, <laughs> for example. So yeah, I'm not—I'm not too disappointed with it. And, I, and I've seen Gallagher play and. He he always looks fairly decent, but he's not. I guess I guess it's probably the type of player he is that he doesn't maybe stand out as mm. as, as exceptional. But I do think I've I've not seen anything of O'Brien either, truthfully, because um, it's the championship and who's watching that these days? It's a it's a league for losers. Ben White is a, a good name to raise because well, it's, it's the I time, feel it's the timing of it, isn't it? Because we have now evidence of him becoming a fifty million pound footballer from two years ago, being nowhere, and we did that basically. I can't be bothered to do this, but if you get the spare 10 minutes, have a look back at the replies to the tweets. When, when I was at the Evening Post, we ran the story that it was Ben White they were going to sign after they sold Pontus Janssen. Now, I can't remember whether exactly the timing of it, whether Janssen had gone um, before that story broke. I suspect that story broke first. The general view of White was, this guy has never played for Brighton. He's been at Newport. He's been at Peterborough. Is this really who we're going to bring in to, to play at centre-back? Seems like a bit of a gamble. We don't know too much about him. But Bielsa and Otter, Otter in particular, had, had done their homework on him and and liked him a lot. And I think that yeah, I think you have to you have to have some faith in them judging Conor Gallagher in the same way. And Bielsa realizing Bielsa not only realizing how he can fit into the team, but how he can improve him and by coaching him and training him because he's done that with so many players. And even if Gallagher looks a bit underwhelming, and I have to say it's not a, a signing that blew me away, but I think it would have been a decent one. You could put money on just about anybody coming in, getting better as a result of being under Bielsa's wing. He clearly thought that was going to be a good fit in the same way as he did with, with O'Brien. As far as the loan went, I mean, Chelsea Chelsea weren't really open to, to permanent offers, but it's not to say that in a year's time there, there wouldn't have been a, a deal deal to be done for him if, if he'd done well. I wonder whether in Gallagher's head he thinks he'll play far more at Palace and it, you know if, if Leeds are good again, then realistically he probably will. The fact the club were willing to do a loan deal on it, is that, Indicative of a financial constraints, or is it just that they were he was a player they wanted, so they they were happy to get him however he came? Because I have put this down in the notes in front of me to bring up with you. Actually, it feels like they've been a little bit more conservative with the small C this summer. I think they are, but again, if you go back to last summer, that was the message, wasn't it? We're not mm. going to spend as much next year, and I don't think you can anticipate a hundred million pound window 
every time. If they were to do a winger at the end of this window, and it's still difficult to tell if they're going to get serious about that, I think you'll be looking at expenditure because any decent winger they try and sign is going to be in the ballpark of 15 to 20 million, you would think. So again, you're talking about a window in which the best part of 50 million has been spent with not much, if anything, recouped from players going elsewhere. I think if a winger comes in, there'll be questions to be asked about Hilda Costa. So perhaps, you know, there'll be a bit of a trade-off there. But it's not as if nothing's been spent this summer. It just hasn't been quite as, as spectacular as last year. But I look at the squad and I think Furpo will make a difference at left-back. I'm pretty confident that Rodrigo will have a better season this season than last season. I think Rafinha has so much scope to improve further. I do think this team can get better as it is at the moment. And I think they've they've attacked the, the key position, which was left back. But I, I understand people being concerned about the you know the possibility of standing still or, or going backwards, and that's what you what you really need to avoid. But it does it is a little contrary to what Bielsa has done over three years at Leeds. And I, one of the first articles I did after coming back was talking about you know the fact that he doesn't seem to have taken a proper day off this summer. I know he was in Edinburgh. So you've seen in Edinburgh with his wife, but I think he's one of these guys who is never off the phone. Who's never out of touch, he's he was banging the drum for this training pitch, which is costing a huge amount of money. So it's the same as the one at Elland Road. It's the the training has has gone up in intensity. The amount they're doing it is cracking the whip again. I don't. We're going to get chat about second season syndrome inevitably because that that's always what people discuss before you get into a year after a, a very good one. But I get the feeling that he's far from kind of sitting still, standing still. I think quite the opposite. Just on Bielsa, I have to confess to, because uh, I drove to Newcastle a couple of days ago, I needed to stop at a supermarket on the way up, so I made it the Weatherby Morrisons just on the off Just chance. in case, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Didn't see him. <laughs> Didn't see him. There is a certain paradox, I think, attached to the idea of Lewis O'Brien, because I reckon if he was being touted around for 15 million quid, 20 million quid, it might make him look more attractive. There is an element of that. I'm not surprised that in the end, Ben White has gone to Arsenal for 50 million or, or whatever it was exactly. But that is a lot of money. It's a lot of money and I can't decide at the moment whether that environment, Arsenal, is a good place for a £50 million defender to, be, not, to be going. No, no. And there's the, the grave risk of being exposed because that team is not right, let's be honest. There's a lot that he's doing to it and you're always going to have that around around your neck. There's a definite strategy at Leeds of trying to find younger players with potential and potential resale value and I guess O'Brien does definitely fall into into that category in the same way that Conor Gallagher would have done if, if they could have taken him in permanently. But O'Brien is, is definitely one to watch because they're, they're working on that one. I think with O'Brien, there's certainly a, a level of snobbishness of looking down going, we can't possibly want anything from Huddersfield, can we? Their best players of all time are like Andy Booth and John Stead. They've never produced anything of, of worth. Oh, but I, I do like the idea of upsetting them over this, though. That is a good... Well, they, they've got Corbin as well, haven't they? And if anybody understands, I mean, Corbin has been trying to can integrate motherball style training sessions and, and he's taken a lot of what he learned from Bielsa with him to, to Huddersfield. If there's anybody who would be able to tell Bielsa, you know, whether or not O'Brien would fit nicely, it's surely him. Cause mm. you know, Corbin was right there on the front line for two years. He knows how Leeds play. Leeds haven't really changed to any great degree since he's left. He, he should be a good judge of whether O'Brien would, would be a decent signing. And I, again, I, I, I think it potentially would be, I, I just get the feeling that whoever comes in, certainly to begin with, is probably not going to play that much because mm. you can see the team taking shape again. You, we could probably guess if everybody's fit starting 11 for the game at Old Trafford and I don't think a new midfielder would be in it, certainly at this late stage. Speaking what? of fitness, any uh, inside track on Adam Forshaw, how he's doing? I've seen, obviously seen him play bits in the, in the under-23s game so far. He's looked fairly good, I would say. Yeah, I, I was up at... Thorpe Arch, I went to interview Melee about two weeks ago and Forshaw was there. I was chatting to a few people who were happy with him. He's played in these 23s friendlies and seems to be okay. I think he's one of these guys who now is going to need a run of games and a, a concerted period before he can say that he's properly over it. But mm. they do feel pretty optimistic about it. And the way that they have felt optimistic about him before is just never quite quite got there. He's got a lot of catching up to do, no doubt. I mean, if we get to the end of September before he plays for the first team, it'll have been two calendar years, which is a ridiculously long length of time and, and I imagine very hard for, for him to deal with. But injury-wise, they seem to be okay. Liam Cooper, by all accounts, I saw him as well up at Thorpe Arch. He looks like he's lost even more weight, which is unbelievable because I didn't think he had any any to lose. He needs to take some of mine, really. 
he's had a couple of knocks, I think. So we're recording this before the Ajax game. I, I don't know if he'll feature against Ajax, but he is not far away apparently and should be fine for the start of the season. I think um, Stroik got a bit of bruising um, in the game against Betis and Irente has pulled a muscle, I think. So might be looking at a couple of weeks, but they seem to be all in all in, in pretty good shape. Just returning to O'Brien, one of the fun bits that I turned up. Obviously, we go to YouTube, you know, for the for the on-field skill set. But Wikipedia reveals all sorts of stuff. Font of all knowledge, well written. O'Brien grew up watching Manchester City with his father during his time with Bradford City, where he went on loan for a bit from Huddersfield. O'Brien used to entertain his teammates by singing. I've got a few regulars I do, so I followed it all the way through to the actual article. Uh, mainly Superstition, Valerie and Stand By Me. I wouldn't even say I'm a good singer. I just put a lot of effort into it, which actually Bielsa might really like. Yeah, well, God loves a trial, doesn't he? This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Yeah, the start of the show, Phil, with we mentioned that um, you'd spoken to Pablo Hernandez. Now he's over at, at Castellon, and you've done a big bit with him, a big chat. The overriding theme with that one, it was now on ever for Castellon, despite sort of better offers, more money, higher divisions. It was his, his hometown club. When I went there to write about him, everybody, he's got a lot of friends inside the club, sporting director, technical director, and he's, he's obviously a shareholder as well. And everybody was desperately pushing the idea that one day he would come back and play. And, and you thought there was a, a fairly high likelihood of it. But given how well he'd been playing for Leeds, you couldn't be certain that he wasn't just going to end up retiring here. I always thought he would go back to Spain, but it, it did feel like it would depend on circumstance. And I think had he been heavily involved last season, it would have been harder to go. And also it would have been much harder to persuade Leeds to to let him go. But he's he's 36 now. He still feels like he's got two or three years left. Um, he said he had offers in Spain's first division, second division, um, offers in other countries that, and I, I don't doubt this at all, that would have been worth a lot more money to him. But it's a it's a really romantic move. I think it was something he was he was desperate to do. His parents live in the city. Um, his in laws and live in Boreal, where the golf course is just up up the road. Um, it's a part of the part of the world that he he absolutely loves, and he he sounded genuinely delighted to be back there. He, he looked very relaxed, actually, a bit sort of blink one eight two with his cap backwards and and everything else. And and you know, despite having a, a newborn as well, seemed full of full of beans and and full of excitement. But yeah, I think he's I think he's chuffed a bit to have done that. Yeah, and the backdrop to his move back there, which I found really interesting in the article, was about the pregnancy. So Mar Garcia, who's his wife, and there is a big tie to golf as well because. Um, she's related to Sergio Garcia. Yes, her brother. Yes, yes. F- famous golfer. So she was back over there with their two sons. So Pablo spent the last, you know, half a year under fairly strict, not necessarily full lockdown circumstances, but within the football bubble without his family there because Ma was pregnant with their their third child and there was a very high chance that they were going to lose this baby. Now, thankfully, that's not happened and they now have Nia, who's their, who's their daughter, but a tremendous amount of pressure to be dealing with from from such a distance as well. Well, you know what it's like when you've got the hospital appointments and the doctor's appointments. And I've got two girls and both of them were fine pretty much all the way through. There was never much of a concern, but it's still stressful. And there's still, every time you go for scans, there's that underlying tension about what they're going to find. It's even worse if, you know, the doctors are saying to you, there is a, a high chance that that you might lose this baby. So he was back in Leeds. Um, his family were back over towards Castellon. I think that, you know, personally, that was really difficult for him. And that at a time when professionally it wasn't going very well for him, all of a sudden at Leeds, there were kind of two sides to it. There was that, you know, that aspect, but also the drift from being basically the the inspiration for this team at Leeds to feeling almost like he was peripheral. I know he did play a little bit, but he he said it never happened before in my career. I'd always been involved, so sometimes more, sometimes less, but you always felt that you were a kind of regular that you were part of the the setup 
I think last season, and there were reasons for this which we'll, we'll get into, but he started to feel as if he wasn't needed. And I know Bielsa said at the end of the, the season that he'd have liked Berardi to stay, he'd have liked Hernandez um, to stay. I think Hernandez felt like he, he had to go and that it was the right decision to go because he couldn't see himself getting a regular game anymore. And, and the odd 10 minutes here and there meant it was very difficult to get any consistency or build up any impetus individually. And he said that he, you know, he was first chatting to Otter about leaving before Christmas and it was basically agreed that, you know, you have to stay for the season, but when we get to next summer, we'll, you know, we'll speak again. And, and clearly, clearly that conversation took place before the season finished and, and Hernandez was off. You could see those first rumblings of discontent because Mar was back, obviously back over in, in Castellon. And I think it was on transfer deadline day, wasn't it? When clearly they must've been having discussions and she posted a picture of, of Castellon, something about coming home and, and they were kind of, you know, the, the subtext there was very, very clear, but yeah, there, I mean, the, the reasons for that, was it a gradual parting of ways with Bielsa? I guess it was. It's it's not quite clear. I don't think Pablo himself really knows, does he? But he no. senses it's connected to Leicester. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, Bielsa doesn't tend to transmit this stuff. He doesn't communicate particularly openly. or He's not the sort of person who would have Hernandez up to his office once a week to chat to him through, through this sort of stuff. I think when people remember the Leicester game when Hernandez threw away his black armband and kicked the water bottle and he, and he said himself it wasn't a good reaction that you know shouldn't shouldn't have when done he, it when and he was substituted yeah, yeah when he was taken off off the pitch it was 2-1 at the time he just hit the bar i think he hadn't played a lot he'd been injured leading up to that game i think it was the feeling that if anybody was going to turn that game he'd have told himself it was it was him but he was the player who was being taken off the pitch i kind of see this in in two ways there's no doubt that Bielsa was angry with him after that, and Hernandez said himself, you know, it was fair enough the decision not to take him to Palace. I think it was a surprise because it wasn't as if Hernandez was told explicitly, you're going to be dropped this weekend. But he understood why Bielsa did that. And, you know, he was quite open in, in admitting that he shouldn't have done what, what he did against Leicester. But he definitely thought that there was a drain in Bielsa's confidence and faith in him from that point. And he said to me, if you look at Crystal Palace as the punishment, you would say, that seems reasonable. You know, that seems fair enough. And and Hernandez was injured after that as well, or there were, there were some fitness concerns, so it did delay delay his return to the squad. But he said, you know, if if you look at it as from the Leicester game to me starting against West Brom, which was his next start and his final start, it could seem to some people like the punishment went on for a very long period of time. It should be said that Bielsa had some really nice things to say about him at the end of the season. And there was that big hug on the last day. I think it's also important to point out that the form was excellent for most of last season club finished ninth it'd be very difficult to take issue with Bielsa's selection policy in general and you know aside from the disciplinary part of it and I think we I think we spoke about this last season on the podcast you got this sense of Bielsa moving on and the club moving on from Hernandez slightly um, even before that moving on from this high dependency on him towards other players who perhaps Bielsa has never said this and would never say this openly I don't think but perhaps were more mobile, had more in the legs, were better suited as Hernandez got older to coping with the intensity of Bielsa's football. I definitely think that the Leicester game made a difference, but it already felt before then like the team in the Premier League was taking shape. And as far as the starting eleven went, Hernandez wasn't in it. I think there's almost a, a sadness of how easily we managed to move on from him, if that makes sense. I think yeah. from an emotional point of view, I wanted to see... Pablo Hernandez having a good season in the Premier League. And while it was a great season and it was brilliant to see, I guess, Rafinha or something like that taking centre stage, there was a little bit of me just thought, I still want Pablo to be good. I wanted This isn't how I wanted him to go out. But Bielsa's not one for romanticism. He's a pragmatist. And the fact that we did move on from him quite seamlessly is, I guess, credit to the way the team developed and the way Bielsa has managed it. Because if you go back a year, it seemed impossible that we could we could function without Pablo Hernandez and, and now all of a sudden we, you know, we're, we're finishing mid-table in the Premier League without him. So credit where it's due on that, I suppose. And do you think maybe the need to try out and find out if Tyler Roberts had it in him perhaps played a part in him falling down the pecking order as well because Roberts needed game time, he needed to find out if he cut the mustard and you know we've seen the contract sorted out this summer as well. So maybe was that a factor? Possibly in the second half of the season. Um, you'll remember in January, Castellon were very interested in signing Hernandez. I think they saw how how peripherally become and they were in a relegation battle which ultimately they lost and they knew that if they could have taken him back at that point he would have made a difference in, in the running for them. With hindsight, Hernandez could probably have gone given how little he, he actually played but Leeds had to, to look after themselves and it is 
important, and you could see it is the example of a of a professional club that they have moved on from Fernandez because they couldn't rely on him forever. He is thirty six. There was going to come a point, and perhaps at Premier League level, he'd he'd reach that where it just wasn't going to be him anymore. He wasn't going to be going to be the one. But it was unfortunate, and I think. I think the, the kind of saving grace for him slightly was that he did get to play in front of a crowd um, at the West Brom game because obviously it had been a it had been a dead season in, in terms of what was going on in the stands. But I I felt with him that he he wanted to have his say about what had gone on because he felt it was important to to tell you how he'd felt about it. But he didn't want that to kind of mar what had gone on with Bielsa in the previous few years. He, he kind of said, you know, it doesn't change my opinion of him as a great coach, I wasn't happy last season and I'm not going to pretend I was happy. And that, you know, that role was just not, not for me. It was difficult to cope with, but he felt that, you know, outside of the Leicester game, he felt that he was really professional through the season. And there was no denying from him that Bielsa had changed him as a player, had improved him as a player, that they were the best years of his career. He said at Valencia, I played well, I was in the Champions League and everything else, but, you know, there's no argument at all. This was me at my best at Leeds. So it wasn't a case of wanting to make an issue of this or, to kind of lock horns with Bielsa, I think he just wanted to say say his piece on on how he felt, but to kind of leave that underlying message of he did good things for me and I did good things for him. And he's, as we've said so many times before, always going to be remembered by the Swansea goal. And you, you got into that as well with him again. I mean, I know we we spoke about it when we about a year ago went up to Thorpe Arch and had a chat with Pablo, which was brilliant. But you know, being in the presence of greatness and all that, and Pablo, etc., etc., etc. But his eyes just sparkled when he spoke about that, and and we know football is all about moments, and that was just the moment for Pablo. Yeah, I'm I'm banned from driving at the moment for medical reasons. Rather I was going to say uh, you should probably explain that. <laughs> rather than alcohol reasons or anything like that. So I, I won't be back in the car until November. So I came through on on the train, and as you pull into Leeds, you see that mural um, on the side of the pub, and it looks absolutely fantastic, and it's such an accurate portrayal of of that moment. And I loved what he said, really, which was that you can't ever count on being loved by supporters when you go to a club. And I think if we're being brutally honest, over the years, certainly since relegation from the Premier League, you could more likely count on being despised um, in the end if you if you came and played for Leeds. And he said, if you if you go from somewhere and you have that, then you can be happy. Uh, football is a big part of every footballer's life, but it's clearly everything to him. And these things kind of matter. These he said, aside from school, football has been has been all I've done for 31 years. And you know, he said promotion was the, the best moment of his life. And just coming away knowing that you've done this for a club and done this for, for a group of supporters and that they think enough of you to put a mural in the city centre is a high level of, of fulfilment. And what he kept saying was, you know, whatever happened last year and however unhappy I was last year. It, it really doesn't change the way I think about the time I had in Leeds. I remember Andy Hughes saying something similar when he left Leeds. He said, "Whatever happens, I I did something for Leeds United, and that and that matters. Yeah. That will that's always that's on the record now. No one can change that." I think with Pablo, it's nice that that he's, he has gone back to Castellón. So I'm I'm almost glad he's gone somewhere where he'll be properly appreciated and where he can be loved and love it. And yeah, he's not just been put out to pasture. No, exactly. Like, he yeah, could have. Yeah, it's yeah. very different to not to pick on him, but like Alioski's move is very clearly like a, a money move and. Pablo could have, I'm sure, got more money somewhere, but I guess their financial circumstances are quite different and with family and everything. But it feels like Pablo's done, he's done the right thing and he's thought, no, do you know what? The age I'm at, let's just be happy. Let's just go somewhere I can play football and and see my family and just have a nice life for a bit. Ima- and I'm, yeah. I'm kind of, I, I, want, I feel like he deserves a happy ending. Imagine the pressure on him at Castle, though. The division, he, said, well, he said he likes it, doesn't he? That's he the he thing. did, yeah. yeah. Um, division, division three club, want to get promoted. He, I would imagine... I don't know a huge amount about the squad at Castellon, but I would think ability-wise, he will be on a, a pretty different level to most of the players who Makes are there. Megs training. And, well, this is it, you see. And and he said, you know, the first game, I know that everyone in the stadium and all the cameras are going to be on me saying, is this guy doing what he's supposed to be doing? Is he as good as everybody, everybody says? There's also the interesting dynamic of the fact that you have a shareholder in the dressing room, which must be really rare. I can't think of... Many clubs where where that would happen, and you know he was trying to make the point that the, the coach there, um, Sergio Escobar, 
is 100% in charge and, you know, it's his, his authority. But it must be different for a manager to know that one of the guys sitting in the corner is, your boss. Of you is essentially yeah. your boss. Yeah. 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 I think Peter Ridsdale tried it a few times, didn't he? Get muscling in on the team photos and stuff, but not quite the same. Going down to the dressing room in his full kit. The other, the other interesting thing, and maybe laughed at this, that Sergio Escobar, the coach, he's actually been rehired because um, he was there before, but got sacked by this ownership, i.e. Pablo Hernandez's ownership has previously sacked the coach that is there now and has rehired him. So that, there's another kind yes, of twi- twist. But, that it, dynamic. It, but, but it, what I really liked was, yeah, Pablo saying, but that was another shareholder. It wasn't me. <laughs> no, and, and do you know, the only thing I would say in his defence is that when I went over to do the piece on Castellon, and this was two years ago, they said exactly the same. When this um, this businessman had bought in and started making all sorts of weird decisions, so Hernandez and um, the, the one of his um, one of his old teammates there, um, Angel Dalebert, who I think is technical secretary, they basically stepped away from the club because they said, we're not happy with the way this is being run and we don't really want anything to do with this and the businessman guy called Garrido he sold up eventually because it was just all negative and it, and it was not good and, it, and it's been pretty pretty happy since then with the exception of relegation last season but they were always going to be hard pressed in, in Division 2 so I think on the basis that Escobar has gone back clearly there's no particular bad blood there but yeah I mean he was sacked it, it wasn't going that great for him at the point where he was sacked but he'd won promotion and his records kind of win ratio and everything else was, was really really good and I've read I've dug out a few um, comments from him where he was quite clearly aggrieved about what about what went on uh, but he obviously doesn't hold it against the the bunch who are still in the boardroom at the moment maybe Pablo's year under Chilino did teach him one or two things of, uh, of, of ownership he sounds like the Chris Wilder of, uh, of Castellon as, uh, <laughs> as this manager this episode is supported by season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We'll get into the uh, the chat with Melier in just a bit, Phil. It's his first interview, isn't it, that one? It's the first sit-down he's done since coming to England. Um, he did a few in France when he was at, at Lorient. I'd kind of been chasing him and badgering the club for about six months because I was really interested in you know this 20, 20-year-old keeper who'd suddenly emerged as first choice in, in the Premier League. But as I say, I, I, will, I will bore you with all that <laughs> shortly. Yeah, I just wanted to ask about the winger, actually, because we didn't sort of mentioned it when we were uh, talking about transfers in, in part number one. Names in the frame, is, is anything in the offing there? Because it feels to me like there is a, a specific subset of targets and it's been pushed to the end of the window for good reason. Maybe they're are they looking for a price to drop or is it the availability of a player? I'm looking at, for example, Ryan Kent, is always his name is always in the frame. Champions League, Rangers may go out, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and there, there is muttering about him back up in Glasgow again. Leeds do like him, have liked him for a long time. Um, I had to go at him last in the, the last summer window. And you'll remember in 2019, we're looking at him really closely before they did um, Eddie and Ketia on loan from, from Arsenal. It goes back to what I said about Bielsa and, you know, the way he fixates on players that he likes. He's never, you find with some clubs that they will work hard on a, a deal that doesn't happen and then they will move on and sometimes that player will move to another club or, they, or things just change, change managers or change style or whatever. And, and that player no longer fits. But, you know, Bielsa's never given up on Dan James. He's never completely abandoned that. Ryan Kent is another one that, that he's he's liked for a long, long time. And the links to Noah Lang at Club Bruges, he's somebody that they've they've definitely been been looking at. I still can't tell if they will do a winger. It's really difficult to Why? to get because I think it will depend on a few factors. It'll depend on who's available. It'll depend on how much they cost. It will depend as well on whether when it comes to the crunch, Bielsa actually feels like he wants one. And that is always critical in this. If if he actually wants somebody, 
then they'll go for it. But if he happens to say, I'm quite happy with what I've got and, and I like the numbers who are here and I don't want an extra body, then that would just be the end of it. That would pull the plug in and they would just go into the season as they are in terms of wingers. Uh, so we will see, basically. Mm. It's, um, it's, it's quite enigmatic, isn't it? Because we know from yeah. our previous conversations with Angus Kinnear, it's a three-way discussion, isn't it, around the transfers? There's a financial and then, you know, maybe Victor Orta's looking at the availability and things from a football side and Bielsa's giving his input as well and the three of them will go around in a circle discussing these matters. You would, you would think there'd be a concrete plan there uh, around a player or one of these three players. But Bielsa is enigmatic and it does kind of work like that. The first window when he came in, 2018, was the first point at which he could have signed Ben White and Leeds had been scouting him previously and had said, you know, we can do this easily from Brian, we can get him on loan, no problem. And we spent all that season thinking, do they have enough centre-backs? Have they got enough cover? Yeah. You know, what are they going to do if there are injuries? And what they did was be able to just find solutions all, all the way through. And that was the first, probably the first bit of insight into the way he works when it comes to numbers in the camp and the kind of refusal to have people wandering about at Thorpe Arch who are not, not going to get a game. And then obviously the next summer, Janssen goes, he takes White, and White is a is an absolute sensation in the championship. So he's not conventional in the sense of always making it clear what it is that he's going to want or what it is that he's going to want to do. He, he can at any given moment say, do you know what, I would like a winger actually. Yeah, we should go and do one. At which point the club will, will try and mobilise, which is why Orta always has shortlists which have multiple names on. So never just one target because you always have to be ready to to move on and it's also part of the reason why Arthur works so hard I do think people underestimate the amount of graft that he gets through at Leeds and, and also underestimate the kind of success or the, the challenge that he's managed to overcome in maintaining a really successful and productive relationship with Bielsa who's not easy to work with you know it's not, not easy to manage that so yeah enigmatic is probably the right word um, Nightmarish and, <laughs> um, Well you see this is the thing there are probably days where it feels like a, an absolute nightmare, but the, the counterbalance is that you have this coach who is this ridiculously high winning percentage, even after a season in the Premier League. This coach who's got you promoted out of a division that nobody else looked like getting getting a handle on. A coach who, and, and I, I love this about Bielsa, who pushes them in directions that they might otherwise be a bit resistant to go. I mean, we, we must have said this, but Imagine under Chilino or GFH or even Bayes, a, a manager going to them and saying, you're installing a pitch for one and a half to two million pounds at Ellen Road. I need exactly the same surface at Thorpe Arch, please get it done and have it done for the start of the season. And they'd have said absolutely no chance. You know, there'd have been a huge argument about it. I mean, I remember... Chilino people, would have, a, with the drain swimming pool, they'd have put some AstroTurf down in that. Well, I, I remember one summer when the staff at Thorpe Arch asked Chilino to replace some of the signs there. The signs were all old and falling to bits and it just looked a bit unprofessional. And, they, and I don't know how much that would have cost, but it would have been a minuscule amount for a football club. And it was just a case of absolutely not. What's the point in that? There's no need at all. But you have Bielsa now, and in fairness, you have a board who are willing to do this sort of thing, who will say, I want this pitch, and, and they'll they'll put the money up. But I think because he knocks on the door for these things and because he pushes it, it is dragging the club closer and closer to the level that they need to, to be at, you know, to properly compete with your best clubs in, in the country. So, yes, he can be difficult, and yes, he can be hard work, and yes, there have been some famous arguments be, between him and, and Orta, Everybody knows that he's been incredibly good for the club and actually, in the grand scheme, incredibly good for them individually as well. While we're finishing off the Arter and Wingers chat, Adama Traore, is that is that a completely like made-up thing that, that, that seems to just get rehashed every few weeks? 30 million quid is not going to happen, is it? Well, first up, he doesn't seem in any way to me like a Bielsa player. Victor Arter does know Traore very well, but I haven't heard Traore spoken about at any point through the summer. I know there have been the links, but every time we've asked about him, We've been told definitely not or really no. You know, it just doesn't doesn't seem likely. And from what we are told at, at both ends, you know, Wills and, and Leeds, there hasn't been any contact about Traore or not official contact. So I, I can't see that one, although I'm setting myself up there really. Yeah. But I don't know. Do you think he but, I mean, think he fits? I could I could sort of see it in a way because Bielsa likes explosive pace, doesn't he? Um, which I guess is the attraction with Dan James, because he... Dan James, for all we've kind of poked fun at him, he feels a little bit like a rough diamond, like he needs just knocking into shape and being given maybe some more tactical awareness about maybe when to release the ball, maybe when to stay on your feet, that sort of thing. A bit like Traore, in fact. 
Exactly, yeah. But Traore is he's a, you, he's a beefcake, isn't he? How's you, he going to get? Do you get? not think one of those is more malleable than the other, though? Probably Dan James. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And you would argue is probably going to be cheaper than, than Traore or the numbers that have been knocked around. But then again, you don't know that, let's say, Leeds have said Traore and Wolves have said 30 million and Leeds have said, no thanks. Um, we'll do it at 20. Or Get whatever. that. Just make a shortcut. Buy Dan James and get him on the weights with Charlie Cresswell, who seems to have come back from, from some of like a absolute Dolph Lundgren looking, or something. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to start oiling them up, won't we? Yeah. And um, Chris Clarsen was the goalkeeper that was brought in that you were talking about before, Phil. Just makes sense just getting him in. Number 13 shirt, the reserve keeper, time to develop. Very young lineup of keepers we've got. Very. Yeah. 20 year old on the bench, 21 year old in the team, which was, was one of the themes of the chats I had with, with Melier. He's, um, He's a great guy, actually. He's really good fun. Speaks terrific English, and is really good, you know, as, as a as a Frenchman. Really good at telling stories in in somebody else's language. I'm constantly embarrassed when I go and speak to footballers who are from elsewhere because you can I, barely speak English anyway. Well, I can hardly yeah. speak English, and I can I can barely um <laughs> I can barely speak any French apart from Parlez-vous yeah. Anglais or, or whatever <laughs> whatever it is really. Um, but he is incredibly young to be a first choice in the Premier League. He was the youngest keeper in. Europe's top five leagues last season to have made 10 plus appearances, closely followed by Donnarumma, who we, we got on to talking about because there are there are kind of similarities between the, the two of them. Donnarumma was a teenage number one at AC Milan. And, you know, even at his young age, I think he's 22 now, um, it would kind of be regarded as one of the best keepers going. Um, mm. And now off, off to, to PSG. But we spoke a lot about Millie's younger life in, in Lorient and... He, I was saying to him, you know, he's a massive guy. He's like six foot five, six foot six. He's bone thin. And he just looks like a goalkeeper. Huge wingspan. And I said, I was saying to him, you know, you must have been the biggest kid at your school, surely. And he said, well, no, not really. You know, I was always kind of a modestly big height, but not so that you'd look at me and say, wow, he's really tall. And then one year he grew about 10 centimetres and all of a sudden, bang, you know, it had this, this physique. But also was a bit of an accidental goalkeeper. He played for a, a youth team in, his, in the city where he, he grew up and they went to a tournament and they were without a goalkeeper and his coach said to him, Milan, you can play in goal. And Melier thought, no, I can't be doing with this. I want to I want to play a field. I want to score the goals, you know, like, like kids do. But he seemed to be a natural at it. And this, um, this coach had links with Lorient and Lorient found out about him. He was only kind of eight, nine years old. Really liked him, took him on and... But one of those stories really were, were the rest of it is history. Our mate Moscow White said over on the Square Ball podcast that maybe just this narrative of mature keepers being the way that you have to do things is just it just happens to have become a thing because there are fewer opportunities to become a keeper. You know, if you think about it, there are nine, what ninety two professional clubs in England. That's ninety two first choice keepers. Couple of hundred when you're taking your your reserve um, reserves into account. So it, it's a niche position. So it is. There aren't many jobs in that field. I said in the piece that quite often with goalkeepers, it feels like old enough is good enough rather than the other way around, which is the, the way it's applied to, to outfield players. One of the things I've noticed with Melly, he, he does make mistakes from time to time, as, as keepers do, but he seems very, very good at processing them. It never seems to, to weigh on him, particularly when he makes errors. And he said that's something he, he works hard on, You know, the idea of, of, of thinking about the next ball as soon as you've made a mistake, because if people see your reaction and it looks negative and it doesn't feel good, and it's not great for the defenders in front of you. It's it's good for the opposition because they start to think that they've got into into your head. But it was funny talking about training at, at Lorient because you you have the kind of vision in your head of Bielsa's boot camp regime being totally unique, and you know other other clubs not doing the same. But he was saying that they had a goalkeeping coach over there who used to do these. They were called mental sessions that kind of made the keepers want to be sick because they were so hard physically. And he would also set up once a month boxing sessions where the keepers basically had to fight each other. <laughs> um, and the idea was that they would toughen them up. They would get used to one-on-one situations. So, you know, a bit more bravery, a bit more courage when it came to close one-on-ones. Um, and also it would work on the, I think the, the coach said, the lucidity of the upper body, you know, your flex flexibility. Um, Melia was talking about one day when um, Daniel Petkovic, who was uh, was first choice there, ended up streaming with blood because somebody, uh, one of the other keepers, had leathered them in the face, which was you know the whole name of the game. But you know he said it it was really hard, but it was good for him mentally, and I suspect that's probably helped him over here, where where training is no picnic either. It's interesting to hear of like such focus on mindset and resilience from somebody who's only twenty one years old, because that that tends to be something that will 
come with age. But again, when we spoke to Angus Kinnear maybe last year and he was saying like, he's just got ice in his veins. He Rid- has. Ridiculously calm. We got into talking about Monaco and Chelsea, both of whom had tried to sign him. Now, I think Lorient said no to Monaco's bid. Melier said that had Monaco had the bid accepted, he would have said no anyway because he wanted to play his first game at Lorient. He'd been there for about nine, ten years and he didn't want to have nine, ten years with a club without making a professional appearance for them. And then in that same window, Chelsea came in for him and, and a deal was agreed and Chelsea said to him, are you ready? And this was right at the end of the window and Melier said to them, no, if you wanted me, you should have come two weeks ago, a week ago, two weeks ago. You're coming right at the end of the window. It's it's too late. So they just left that. Oh, good boy. Left that alone. <laughs> I know. Um, but he gave it more thought than that because once he dug a bit deeper into into the Chelsea move, he said, you know, they're a really big club and it was a kind of brave decision, that one. But there are a lot of keepers there and in the academy, you tend to find at Chelsea that you sometimes have to go out on loan and then come back and go out on loan and, and then come back. So he clearly he clearly knew his stuff. And I think Chelsea might have had another nibble at him had it not been for the, the transfer ban um, that FIFA imposed on them. But by that point, Leeds were having, having a look at him. And essentially what happened was that there was a change of coach at, at Lorient and Melier was told, you're going to go from having got into the team and got ahead of Petkovic at you know, a really young age, I think he was 18, 19. He was told, you're going to go back to number two. We're going to sign somebody else. We're getting a guy called Paul Nardi from Monaco. And again, Melier's attitude was, okay, well, in that case, I'm going to leave. And he didn't want to be second choice, but in, in his words, he would rather have been second choice at Leeds behind Casilla than he would have been second choice behind Nardi at Lorient. So he came and it's worked out brilliantly for him. And Bielsa's faith in him seems pretty unshakable. And he looks like he's going to be number one for the for the foreseeable. And I think, like I say, that there are errors in his game from time to time and he's, he's not totally, totally rounded. But I think there's a very good chance that he'll be a proper household name a little bit further down the line. Given his desire to play, is there a bit of a sliding doors moment here with Casillas' ban and his lack of form? Because maybe if he, if Casillas was the keeper we thought we were signing and without the eight game ban was it yeah maybe he doesn't get to play he doesn't establish himself and we see him moving on again very much so and that's a goalkeeper's life isn't it that they more than anybody else have to be ready for someone just saying to them it's you today um and you're in and, and that Casilla ban came very late in the day before Hull City you would remember the, the Hull City game there was that video of Millie beforehand in the warm-up where he had his hands on his hips and the ball flies behind him and he's just sort of nonchalantly back heels it away and I said you looked extremely relaxed in that moment you know as if it was all fine he said no I was really really stressed really stressed about that game the first two kicks were not great you know I think both went went out of play and it was a case of saying to himself you know just get a grip really you know get a grip focus try and get a clean sheet and he said once the goal started flying it was much easier because Leeds wiped the floor with with Hull that day but I think he's been well worth his his place and I think to have somebody like that at 21 in your team I mean, you'll have obviously Donnarumma has gone to PSG. They were genuinely interested in Melier. They did like like the look of him because he's so young, because he's so talented. I mean, there is going to be an opening with the France national team at some point because Lloris is not going to go on forever. And you would think that Melier at this rate will be in the conversation. Interesting parallels with Lewis Bate and the Chelsea Academy system. And Lewis Bate has chosen to exit that system where he possibly, I don't know, could have earned quite a lot of money, had a nice comfortable life. You look at some of these the mid twenties loanees who we've, you know, dipped our toes in the in the waters with, and a lot of them don't go anywhere. I mean, it's taken Patrick Bamford a long time to kind of navigate his way through the the football landscape to to find a permanent home. So brave of Lewis Bate to have that awareness and say, maybe there's a clearer pathway to first team football if I go to Leeds. And it's interesting that Melier maybe saw similar similar things. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if, if the Chelsea bid had come two weeks earlier, whether he actually would have said yes and would, would have given it given it a go. Let's think the I best th- of, let's think the best ab- of him. Absolutely, but I still think it reflects well on him that he sort of said, you're asking me to clear out at 24 hours notice. I don't want to do that. You know, I, I don't feel I don't feel that that's the, the right thing to do. There has been this period, isn't there, where academy players at Chelsea have started to push through into the first team squad so Mount and, and Abraham and, and so on and, and obviously Gilmore as well but it did feel as if that was partly driven by the FIFA ban it did feel as if that was partly driven by Lampard being manager and, and that being you know his kind of MO without being able to, to sign players en masse it might not be the same now and I know that one of the reasons that Bate wanted to come to Leeds was because he could see Gilmore in front of him and he realised that there was a bit of a hurdle there that was going to be difficult to to clear. And if that hurdle stays there for 
two years, three years, four years, then you do find yourself in the situation that people like Lewis Baker and Izzy Brown have, have been in where you're not playing and you are constantly going out on loan and nobody's quite sure what the what the grand plan is. And not to mention Conor Gallagher, of course, who's going to want to try and establish himself um, somewhere in that pecking order. And you'd imagine he's further up than Lewis Bate would have been. He definitely is further up than Lewis Bate would have been. But I, I mean, Donnelly Tuchel could, could say, but I don't really know how close Gallagher is to, to the first team. He's always sensed with these players that the the likelihood is that they will end up elsewhere rather than, than playing for Chelsea. Gilmore certainly being one of the exceptions and, and Mason Mount too. It'll be interesting to see with Bate, you know, five, six years down the line, what, what has happened with him. But I don't think there's any doubt at all that Melly has made the right decision in holding fire at Lorient and, and, and then coming to Leeds. Well, let's circle back then to, to close the show out. Let's circle back to where we started and that's uh, around pre-season. And we are, as you said, recording just ahead of the, uh, the Ajax game and there's Villarreal to come as well before the season kicks off in another week's time. Blackburn away, Betis, we played um, at Loughborough, a couple of under-23s games at Geisley and Fleetwood. Do we have to conclude anything from those games? Do we learn anything or is it just training? Is it just another exercise to get the shape right? Little bits and pieces. I've liked the look of Shackleton, somebody who really, really needs to get, get games some point soon, but again, is probably going to find himself on the fringes of the of the starting eleven. Furpo, I think, has looked good in, a, in an attacking sense, but it is rather difficult. I, I always try not to, to read a huge amount. And I think these last two games, there are a couple of games against Ajax. There's a 23s game earlier in the day and then um, a first team game in the evening and then Villarreal at the weekend. These are the games where you can kind of look at how it's all coming together and, and how it's shaping up. And I don't doubt that, you know, Phillips is obviously back in the mix now after um, the Euros. I don't doubt that what we see against Villarreal will be very, very close to what we see away at Old Trafford and it doesn't feel to me if everybody's fit if Llorente's injured and, and not available that is a, a bit of a kick in the teeth I think actually because he he settled in really nicely towards the end of last season and made a difference to the defence but I don't feel as if Bielsa has a vast number of decisions to make about this team I think it feels like Dallas is ahead of Cleek still um, unless Bielsa decides that he wants to start Dallas at left back rather than his £30 million signing from Barcelona, but Furpo has played so much that you would think that he is kind of in line for that, and he should be in line for it. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole point of the point of the signing. But I'm I'm so quietly optimistic. We said at the start of the start of the show, you know, there does seem to be a little bit of bit of tension, but I still think there's more in this squad and more in this team. I still think that we haven't. I don't think they've peaked or plateaued under Bielsa, and you know, I'm I'm prepared to to have to roll. <laughs> roll back on that if it doesn't go well this season actually that's, that's um, a hill you've picked to die on there but if you <laughs> if you consider Sheffield United summer last year it didn't feel good it didn't feel as if everything was cohesive you were starting to get signs of Wilder and the board losing patience with each other and, and that relationship starting to fray you just don't feel that with Bielsa at all you feel like he's dead set again on just crashing into this season and going hell for leather Did you signed his contract yet? I don't think he has, no. Um, oh, I'll get done on the eve, eve of the season it, again. It probably will. I think you were talking earlier about you know nightmarish stuff. I, I suspect that the one thing that they'll enjoy and when they sadly lose Bielsa and somebody else comes in will be the kind of straightforward negotiations of contracts in comparison to, to this. It's the, it's the usual thing where it's just tying everything down and, and making sure he's happy. But it's not as if he's sat back in... Rosario waiting for it to be signed. I mean, he's been at Thorpe Arch all the way through the summer and the same as, as last year is is ready to go, irrespective. And on the sort of online anxiety, that creeping anxiety that we see, you have to remember it's not the blanket opinion either. It's just, no, it's the no. expression of that that fear, isn't it? And so I think those when you express those opinions, when you read those opinions, that's just the worst part of people coming out. All the good part, like I'm saying, really looking forward to the season and confident about where it's going to go. As long as it's you know, similar to last season and we get to be there, it's all good. And it feels like we're in rude health. And we are going to speak to Angus Kinnear next week, just in the um, in the run-up to the start of the new season. So it'll be interesting to take the temperature from within the club. And I expect to find that they're all quite, you know... Uh, I think you'll find he'll be extremely positive rel- about Relatively it, yeah. relaxed I, about it all. I think so. It, it's the worst thing about football or following a football club. Are those periods where suddenly everything's you know everything's on the line again so without a ball being kicked this season how is it going to go you you feel confident but you know there's always that chance that it isn't quite going to click in in the same way and the stakes become far higher once you get into the premier league relegation is a 
is a complete nightmare for most clubs and particularly clubs who've invested in the way that Leeds have and you have other things on the periphery like development of Ellen Road which do need Premier League football to be viable and, and to be sensible so there's there's plenty at stake but I, I always feel with Bielsa that if if he wasn't happy with the squad as it was or if he didn't feel confident about the squad he would be saying so and he'd be saying so in a way which would be making Leeds react in a, a completely different manner and nature hates a vacuum it gets filled with yes. uh, terrible opinions online doesn't it most of them ours but I'm sure in another week's time, but we've got the anticipation of the game to look forward to. And as soon as the football kicks off, we will have tangible things to talk about, whether they are good or bad. And also tangible conclusions to draw about what's going on with the team. I don't think it's unreasonable for people to to think that the window has not been as they would have wanted it. You know, that's that's fair enough to to think that. But I think it is, you know, without, without everything having been completed or done yet, I think it is the window as Leeds said it would be. I don't think there'd been any huge surprises. Um, so in that sense, it's, it's a little hard to knock them. Well, if you want to express your terrible opinion at the Phil Hay Show, <laughs> so you can find us on Twitter and you can subscribe to The Athletic in time for the new season. 33% off the full price at theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. Ready for it then. Back next week on the eve of the season. We'll speak to you then. The Phil Hay Show. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.